Welcome. You found Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. I'm your host, Lawyer Liz, and while I am an attorney, the Buzz Off show is not legal advice nor representation of my employer. Instead, the Buzz Off show is a weekly look at all of the buzz surrounding drones, autonomous vehicles, Internet of Things, and all the technology in between. Find us each Wednesday from 2 to 3 on AmericasWebRadio.com or podcasts of the show available on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or any of your favorite podcast services. Now, this week... We are going to take a look at all of the ins and outs, at least as available as of the show, regarding the WannaCry. So if you haven't been watching the news, you may have missed that beginning on Friday, May 12th, there was an issue where 150 countries saw 200,000 devices locked by a ransomware that really took the world by storm, so to speak, in that it prevented, in this case, older devices, uh, machines that were running the Windows and outdated version of Windows operating system, it locked them and their data. So what that really means is hospitals and manufacturers and everything from personal devices became locked with this ransomware. So with that, we will have an expert on information security systems, the SCADA Wolfgame Garlic, joining us. After, of course, we get through our bust or must for the week and talk about some of the other trends that have been hitting the technology world. And, of course, uh, can't go through bust or must without bringing up Amazon and their Echo. If you've been the subject of prior buzz off shows, then we're not going to ignore the latest, uh, version or latest news on the Amazon Echo because once again from a privacy standpoint it's still a bust because in this latest version what Amazon has announced is that the Echo is moving into the touch screen space as well as the telephone and video calls and really the first sticking point is you have the ability, and Amazon is telling us that it's going to be an opt-in feature, but with all of the news that had been coming out regarding, for example, the Samsung TVs and the NSA tools, whether it's opt-in or nefarious actors could opt you in yourself, but people can join a call, join you, your device, 
on a call without you having to accept the call. So no more shady dodging or trying to avoid your mother checking up on you and calling. And basically, no more screening your calls if you've opted in because you're going to be connected thanks to Amazon's Echo. And it's going to be a lot harder to, like I said, screen the unwanted calls. But not only that, you're going to have another feature which, depending on how your cell phone is currently or your iPad is currently set up. It's the annoying feature of push notifications. And what those are is, for example, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, email. If you have an update, if someone has liked a post, sent you a message, you get a notification. And, of course, you can turn those off and manage your device settings so that push notifications are deactivated. But I'm not sure that we need those from Amazon's Alexa, the Echo, either. But those were announced within the last day or two that those are going to be an additional feature. So, again, with Amazon's Echo, it's Alexa is getting more and more involved in your everyday life. And so for the sake of convenience, that may not be a bad thing. But from a privacy standpoint, it still remains a bust. Now, if you watch the Jamie Oliver uh, show on Sunday evenings, you've probably seen his take on the FCC's net neutrality issue. And while the FCC's current and new chairman, Ajit Pai, has talked about rolling back some of those protections, or in that case, and some would say regulations, that really either dampen or help the internet with the net neutrality It caused a bot or a flood of bots to shut down the FCC's website with commentary and posts. And some of them were not bots. Some were folks legitimately providing feedback. But in the firestorm that erupted on this issue, Ajit Pai took to a video and read the mean tweets that people have been saying about him and for that he gets a must watch a must listen because it is absolutely hilarious it shows he is being a good sport and find it on youtube it's his first name is a J-I-T, last name P-A-I, but for that, you have to give the commissioner, or excuse me, the chairman, a must from the Buzz Off show. And when you start talking about the Amazon Echo and the net neutrality, it brings up some of the other privacy issues, and drones are of course, taking off to the skies, used in everything from infrastructure inspections to aerial photography to missing person searches from local law enforcement. Well, that's ignoring, or at least that's only part of the picture. The other part 
of the picture when it comes to drones is all the data, all the imagery, all the different uh, access and information that is being collected as part of the flight telemetry as well as just part of what the different cameras on the aircraft are collecting. So that data that those those little data points are the next round of big business as the Association for Unmanned Vehicles Systems International, AUVSI, wrapped up their annual conference last week in Dallas. Airbus announced that they are opening their own Airbus aerial that will be looking at and getting into the drone data. And in announcing their new branch, they pointed out that drones are anticipated at or projected to be a $120 billion industry, that it is just an exponential growth seen in that cost savings, as well as the ease of getting much better quality data points when it comes to particularly the infrastructure. But what's happening to all that data and what's the analytics side. So Airbus is jumping into the game, as is Lockheed Martin has announced a software and analytics tool set that will be coming out. So keep an eye on that. Right now, it's obviously a a must industry, but one of the questions that inevitably comes up when you start talking about data being collected is the privacy. What's going to happen to that data? Who's able to use it? Who has access to it? And in previous discussions on Buzz Off, we have looked at or talked about uh, what happened when the manufacturer of the drone, the aircraft that is being used for all this, is manufactured abroad. And in the case of DJI, which is responsible for, depending on the estimates, 80 to 90% of the commercial drone use that you see from, be it government entities, all the way down to individual commercial operators, well, DJI is manufactured by a Chinese-based company or a China-based company, and in some cases, the data is being sent back to the manufacturers so that they can uh, improve the products or you know, determine and you know the crash reports see identify where their aircraft perhaps can use improvement, where they can build better, faster. Uh, safer aircraft, but the questions come, is that all? Is that all that's happening to the data and what happens? So keep an eye on that. The uh, drone data industry, while in itself is, again, a must, when the Center for the Study of the Drone at Bard College released their latest numbers in April 2017, looking at legal cases, you found a lot of cases in this report dealing with the injury, the crashes, but 
a surprising or perhaps not as surprising number of cases dealing with privacy uses. So at least from the legal side, the aircraft flights are garnering privacy attention and what's going to be next is going to be the data, who has access to it and who is being able to use it for whatever purposes they are. And of course, when it comes to data and access to the information. Again, we're going to jump into our commercial break and apologies to our new senior entertainment and political correspondent, Rob Graham, because Rob, we have just run out of time in this segment and will not be able to get to you, but instead we'll be jumping to our discussion on WannaCry and what happens when the critical infrastructure, SCADA systems, as well as healthcare systems are operating behind the curve with our expert, Wolf Gorlick. So join us after the break. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. On a- Whether cruising the strip at a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. 45 years of experience is behind the most trusted name in auto transportation. Passport Transport, the first and finest today. That's why Passport Transport is the preferred auto transport for major auto manufacturers, concours, museums, tours, and collectors, and should be your choice from across the state to across the country. When you have the need, go to PassportTransport.com and enjoy the peace of mind referenced experience will give you. Passport Transport. Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national, Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. And welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. As we've been talking before the break, giving an overview of the world is burning because ransomware has taken over so many of our systems from hospitals, healthcare, to manufacturing, down to individual users with this wanna cry that who better than to discuss what's next, what's going on, and the bigger picture on other areas where we're seeing these issues than today's guest, who is the VP for security programs at CBI, which is a risk IT risk management and compliance consultancy. But Wolf Gorlick, welcome to the show. And you yourself have had quite the busy weekend. Yes, yes, indeed we have. And thank you so much for having me on. I mean, it talk about timely both because you just wrapped up organizing and in some cases providing some great presentations for both the Converge Conference and B-Sides Detroit that both had a focus on this risk management and 
really looking at what the state of security when it comes to the manufacturing, the all the way down to the SCADA, the infrastructure systems. Yeah, that's right. So the Converge Conference in downtown Detroit uh, was set up with uh, with DevOps in mind, right? So so much of the tech companies have uh, come to Detroit and to Ann Arbor, and we've got a lot of great, cool startups. But at the same time, of course, Detroit is well-known, has long been known as a manufacturing heartland. So at this conference, it's really a convergence of hackers, the people who, you know, everyone from the folks who are the, you know, quintessential hacker in a basement to the people who do pen testing and assessments and red team work uh, come in, and we bring in folks who are responsible for the plant floor, folks who are responsible for DevOps, you know, software development, IT operations, and discuss what are cutting-edge attacks and what are cutting-edge defenses, right? Here's what I would do on the offense side, says the hacker, and the IT guy goes, oh, here's how I would look for that and try and protect against that. Um, and yes, of course, on Friday, we had... Uh, arguably the largest attack we've seen in years, definitely the largest attack we've seen this year, uh, occur right in the middle of that conference. I mean, and as we were discussing slightly before getting coming on air, so to speak, it really impacted. You had the individuals who were responsible, in some cases, for the corporate, for their entity's response and mitigation sitting in the middle of the classes and there is no preparation in some sense of it for such attacks i mean attackers look for they don't exactly plan around your calendar so did y'all find any of the the tone of the discussions shifting through the conference as the day wore on and the full scale of some of this uh, for the WannaCry became evident. Oh, absolutely, absolutely. So we had um, a little bit over 300 attendees, and uh, by mm, nine, ten o'clock in the keynote, people's phones started going off, and it was a little bit. Yeah, look, there's ransomware. We didn't really, um, you know, understand the full ramifications just yet. But by lunch, <laughs> all the incident responders, of course, were being called back. Uh, a lot of folks uh, were being called back to to restore systems to the IT folks. And, of course, any one of our CISOs or director levels were being asked very, very serious questions by the organization of, you know, have we been hit? Will we be hit? Are we safe? Are we protected? So it was amazing to watch as the phones lit up and the realizations hit um, and people started slowly drifting off. But thankfully, because we were all there, beforehand we had some great conversations about, okay, what's next? What's a good response look like, right? Um, And with the convergence of the audience, uh, we got to hear from the IT guys and the network guys saying, here's what we see in the perimeter, to the operations guys, to the forensics guys, and everyone chipping in stone stone soup style to say, hey, here's, here's what I think we could do next. Um, I'm going to my organization. If you need anything, let me know. Here's here's a tip for you, something that we just tried that worked. And uh, even though I watched as a good have the audience walked out <laughs> to, to address this unprecedented attack, it was a really good feeling to see everyone pitch in and, and help each other. 
Well, it sounds like while the timing of the attack and the conference was a little, or the conferences were a little unfortunate, it really reiterates the need for this exact kind of conversation, though, is bringing everyone to the table and having those not necessarily off the record, but those open conversations of, hey, this is what we see or and how we respond, as you mentioned, all the different pieces being there at the table without the pressure of it being in the boardroom when something's gone horribly sideways and everyone's defensive. Yeah, that's a really good point. You know, so oftentimes in IT security, when we started out, it really was that lone hacker, you know, in the the 90s. And today's cybersecurity is wholeheartedly a team sport. You need uh, good teammates. And of course, you need those teammates to to have good connections in the wider industry so they can uh, phone a friend, as it were. And so the ability to, to do that networking quickly <laughs> in real time yes. uh, as as the entire city, you know, prepares for and responds to this event um, was good. I, I think for many organizations that improved their ability to deal with this. Well, in taking that team sport analogy a step backwards that's sort of what you do on a daily basis is you work with these organizations to on the practice level i mean you get them ready for game time and assessing what equipment what training what plays they need to add to their playbook is that what you're saying a fair description of the training you or in consultancy you provide yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a big part of it. You know, I'm a, a a big proponent of running security exercises, uh, both for cyber threats and for physical threats. Right, your disaster recovery and your incident response, uh, and doing these things ahead of time, such that when it does occur, and I don't know, a third of your teams at a conference, <laughs> you've got yeah. <laughs> you've got people who have some muscle memory to know here's where our playbook is, here's what we should be doing, here's what we should execute. And uh, you're right, that's also something that neither do I advise organizations on doing. I'm pretty active in the community for the past few years in doing training programs. I was um, was actually out in uh, Bogota, Colombia last autumn where they flew me out to meet with a bunch of Colombian CISOs and lead these types of exercises and train them on how to do that. And uh, that was a lot of fun, especially because, just as a quick side note, they have a real-time translator. So if you've ever seen like the mirror games that they teach kids or those improvisational things, um, it's very disquieting to watch someone who is staring at you and looking at you and mirroring your uh, hand gestures and everything, which I do a lot, and pacing back and forth like you and translating everything into Spanish real time. Very strange, but that was a lot of fun. So learned a lot there. And then this summer uh, in June, I'm going down to Indianapolis and doing uh, the training class again for the Indianapolis security scene and the people who come to Circle City Con. Well, and it's... It's a reminder as well that the issues aren't, and especially with companies that are spread out ever, you need to have that real-time response, the muscle memory, but across even language mm-hmm. barriers, because it, 
I admittedly always get a giggle because you get to know some of the uh, professionals through uh, social media. So I don't always hear them advocating their ideas except for maybe once or twice a year at a conference and then to hear them on NPR or CNN in either heavy accents or going, oh, that's right. You are from that country, not not the U.S. It's a reminder not to be so U.S. centric. Absolutely. And, you know, that ties right back to this event, right? In that, uh, A, from a Detroit perspective, so many of our clients are worldwide. We've got plants all over you know, Brazil and Europe and, and whatnot. So they did have to coordinate um, response throughout throughout uh, throughout all time zones. But also, too, with this flash ransom, this wanna cry. I mean, it hit PetroChina. It hit, uh, you know, universities in China. It hit Deutsche Bahn. It hit organizations following the sun all the way into the U.S. Well, and... It- particularly watching how the community itself came together and it took those same concepts that y'all used in your conferences to a much more global scale of I was watching different uh, information getting shared almost in real time on Twitter as well as some other places where it's like, yes, this is a community banding together. It, When's the last time, or have we seen this before? The last time I can really remember that was in the thick of it was NIMDA, which was admin spelled backwards in the last flash worm that uh, I was on the front lines of. And there's been others. Um, but, But with so much of security being built up over time, it's very rare that we see these types of, you know, flash... Uh, attacks, either worms or ransoms, usually it's because the criminals are smart, right? They only want to affect a couple people at a time so they can keep the attack going over a longer period. Uh, and with this one, with how fast it spread, um, was one of the reasons why it was shut off so quickly, because once it was reversed, it was able to attack. And the other thing is, um, Microsoft released an emergency patch, but they had not planned to release, as a matter of fact. Um, they're not planned to release it. They released it within 24 hours of the attack. So these flash attacks tend to get a lot of attention, but that, of course, means they, they get stopped, right? So if you're a savvy criminal, you're usually a little slower, usually a little bit more diligent. Well, in building on both how these attacks are getting, you know, how the responses were getting kicked out and kind of expedited in that real time, also highlighted that this wasn't necessarily a new uh, attack. It wasn't, a, it was something that had been released. It's kind of what's old is new and new is old that brings up echoes of, okay, how do we, you know, take these old threats that are starting to play out in real time. I mean, that's kind of where things are going. Right, right. And so the the fundamental, the core problem with this had to do with an issue with um, the Microsoft file sharing protocol, right? So the way that my file, my computer shares files and authenticates to another computer in the same office building. And we've seen a lot of problems with that uh, very protocol oh, for a good 10 years now. Uh, this particular flaw, this particular flaw was identified 
um, when several of the exploits used by the NSA were dropped on the so-called shadow brokers drop. So it was out there for a couple months, and Microsoft had agreed to patch their latest operating systems, um, but they had not patched the old stuff. Yeah, that patch is going to be our tease before we go to commercial break, and when we get back, delve into that a little bit more. You're listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on... Cook Immigration Partners is your passport through the immigration maze. Whether it's help with e-verify in your business, or help in how to document a new employee under the new I-9 rules, or if you marry a foreign national... Cook Immigration Partners is your best choice for a legal advocate. Call us today at 866-286-6200. That's 866-286-6200. Or visit us on the web at www.immigration.net. Affordable health insurance was the promise of Obamacare. But for many, the government mandate caused more problems than it solved. This is Dr. Elena George from Medicine on Call, and I want to tell you about a truly affordable alternative allowed under Obamacare, Liberty HealthShare. Liberty HealthShare bypasses doctor and hospital panels, giving you the freedom to choose, and with a maximum of $500 out-of-pocket per person and 100% coverage up to $1 million per year per occurrence, you can rest assured knowing you and your family are protected. Coverage starts as low as $107 per month and also includes dental, vision, pharmacy, and holistic care. Liberty HealthShare puts you back in charge of your health. Visit them online at libertyoncall.org. Again, for a true affordable alternative to Obamacare, visit libertyoncall.org or call toll-free 1-800-714-6993 today. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. Welcome back to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. We're talking today with Wolf Grolick. And Wolf, right before the break, we were discussing how the patch and on this latest WannaCry, how Microsoft first was able to rush out the patch, but how that they had been addressing some of these uh, issues for couple of months before or leading up to the outbreak on Friday. So with that, what what were they working on and what uh, how had this been rolled out a couple months before? Sure. So there's this concept of a zero day and what a, a zero day exploit means is it's an exploit that exists, but no patch is available from the vendor, right? So the minute an exploit is publicly known, it's day zero and day one, day two, day three, day four. It starts tailing up until that patch becomes available. Or, well, and you want those patches as quick to when that exploit exists as possible. But historically, vendors that were patching these systems, you know, within a month or two, and then... Enterprises would take another month or two to deploy it out. So you might have this window of anywhere from four to six months before the patch gets applied. But one of the problems we are seeing today, and we see this a lot with our manufacturing companies and with our medical companies, is because they're running older versions of the operating system, like Windows XP or or Windows 2000, we're having now this concept of a forever day. So not only does the patch get dropped, day zero, but the OS vendor says we're never going to patch that. We never patch older stuff. So this vulnerability now exists 
forever as long as the company chooses to maintain it. And when it first happened, when WannaCry, the original exploit behind it, was first released, we thought we were in a forever day scenario because Microsoft said flat out, we're not going to patch Windows 2000, we're not going to patch Windows XP. They only released the patch for modern operating systems. Well, and that was a good uh, issue that some folks raised is they had stopped supporting this, what was it, back in 2001? Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so we've got now the impacted machines and systems are running, in some cases, uh, a, an operating system that is 16 years out of date. But at the same time, that's nothing, I mean, not surprising to you. You see this all the time. Yeah, absolutely. When we look in like the manufacturing space, uh, about 40% of the operating systems we find are 16 years and older because when you put in place the infrastructure and you buy a piece of machinery right and it's a 10 million dollar piece of machinery you plan to run that piece of machinery for two decades sometimes more and of course that machinery ships out with a windows xp computer but i the buyer who's building my manufacturing plant don't necessarily think about what am I going to do with this Windows XP computer if there's a worm or something? I think about, oh, it's got a computer, too. That, that's handy. That'll make my life easier. So around well, exactly. 40, as long as it's still sending the data, the information you needed, you know, it doesn't matter if it's a dot matrix printer. or Yeah, you just use it and you capitalize on the investment. So we see about 40% are 16 years or older and another 40% are between 11 and 15 years old which is the last great boom in in manufacturing in terms of, you know, purchasing equipment. Very, very few systems in manufacturing, uh, less than 8%, run on these modern-day OSs that are still supported by Microsoft. And that puts our manufacturing uh, customers in a really, really difficult spot. Well, how easy would it be if someone wanted to update the system is not a matter of just downloading a new program and adding it in. I mean, you've got to make sure all the pieces work together and identify how many machines. I mean, what what would be, what would that entail for companies, manufacturers that wanted to integrate and update? Yeah, oftentimes they got to go back to the manufacturer uh, of that piece of equipment, and those manufacturers that's one of their sales tools, right? Yeah, absolutely. That $10 million piece of equipment is is now obsolete by Microsoft. Um, you should know that you may get hit with something like this ransomware. Why don't we sell you another piece of $5 million of equipment? <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Sales commissions. Exactly. And, um, you know, we see something similar in medical. And a good friend of mine who heads up a uh, a a series of hospitals, he brought up a good point. He's like, even if Wolf, even if I want, you know what, fine, let's buy another $5 million worth of, of you know, x-ray equipment because I don't want to run XP. What could that $5 million do for patients' lives? What could that $5 million do for our hospital system or our employees, right? Is that a good choice when you're literally choosing between, um, the health and well-being of your customers versus replacing an older OS. 
Well, especially when you look at states like Georgia, where our rural health care system is uh, its not crumbling, but it's not far from it in the sense of too many of our uh, folks have to go hours to even get to certain trauma levels and centers. And how do they justify you? Know, they don't have five million dollars much less in some cases they're lucky if they have a a ct scan machine you know they don't have the luxury of well the software's update they're buying the used ones from other facilities right right and unfortunately they're buying these used ones that uh come with this very real exploitable vulnerability so it's it's a very difficult Stance that we're putting our, our most vulnerable healthcare systems, uh, and again, manufacturers are in the same boat, um, in because they can't protect themselves. So this concept of forever day is is very real, um, but this is one of the first times we've seen it exploited in such a wide scale uh, attack. And thankfully, Microsoft, to their credit, they went, "Oh, quarter million of machines infected." We'll do something about it. And within 24 hours, they released a patch for Windows XP. But there's there's no commitment, of course, that they're going to do the same thing again the next time we see something like this. Well, and it, it also doesn't, you know, getting the message out, I think, is the other issue. Is people hear about this on the news, and maybe they weren't impacted directly today because it, it sounds so foreign. If you're... A, a hospital administrator in, not to keep picking on Georgia, but in rural Georgia, and you turn on the news and hear that there's a ransomware attack, it, it doesn't, it may not hit home that, wow, we avoided it this time, but next time it's, it's gonna be us. Mm-hmm. How do you bridge that gap? Yeah. That's a very good question. One of the things, uh, since we're talking states, one of the things that we have in Michigan uh, is something called the Cyber Civilian Corps, or MIC3. Um, and I was one of the early members to join that. And what that's meant to be is a volunteer group to reach out to organizations that don't have um, the incident response capability, the technical acumen. And uh, what I like to see, I don't know if Georgia has something similar, but what I like to see is more groups like that where the state collects um, volunteers and has in place a way that those volunteers can then get out to those organizations. Uh, because they, we may not be able to say, hey, we're going to get you a new piece of equipment, but there are some very real controls that you can put around that equipment, like um, isolating it, from the internet and and doing segmentation, um, locking down what you can lock down, uh, sometimes running additional software on it um, that would further harden that operating system. So there are things that you could do, um, varying from you know no cost to relatively low cost to harden that, but really. It's going to take professionals volunteering some time to spend time with folks such as your your um, example hospitals in rural Georgia. Well, and I'm picturing uh, kind of like, I mean, MIC3 has such a James Bond spy uh, 
do y'all have matching black hoodies that you kind of roll out of like a geek squad vehicle with your you know backpacks on going don't worry ma'am we've got this no we didn't but now that you're saying that i i think next time we have an mic3 board member i'm gonna suggest this or sort of like uh, the men in black right you just yes. flash a light you didn't see anything which exactly, is uh, but but you need coins that you can leave so that we know you've been there. Um, and I, if Georgia, and this is a great information that I think needs to be pushed out to not just Georgia but every other state. It's that public-private partnership that you know the p3s that are all the rage when it comes to uh, construction projects and everything but uh, kudos to y'all for taking a leadership role in bringing as you said no cost and low cost of that education aspect bridging that communication gap and taking the time to do that yeah, well, I appreciate you saying that. And I'm, I'm sure there's other initiatives in similar states. I just can't speak to them. But, you know, this gets back to the conferences we were talking about in the beginning. People like myself and people like the, the volunteers in MIC3, we got into this because uh, it mattered to us. We got into this because we wanted to solve problems and help people. And the ability to take that community uh, and then give it an outlet and a a means to reach out to folks that do need it uh, even more is really what it's all about. I mean, any time you can do that and make a positive change is a good time. And in implementing those positive changes, finding ways to then share those lessons learned so that other folks uh, can pick up the ball and run with it in their area. Well, absolutely. It's uh, one thing that the information security community has always impressed me with is the, hey, you know, and there's always going to be some uh, protecting the home turf kind of thing. But in large part, it's that collective spirit of I've learned something. Maybe you can build upon what I've learned and then we have this better product. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And that's the very same spirit that's behind the B-Sides conferences. Uh, B-Sides Detroit being the one I'm involved with, but there's B-Sides ones throughout the, throughout the globe now. And it's all about bringing those folks together and giving a voice to people who perhaps haven't spoken before, right? Letting them tell their story and share their knowledge and their information out. Um, with their peers and with other folks that uh, perhaps they wouldn't have that opportunity. No, and you raise a very good reminder that, uh, for the most part, a lot of the B-Sides conferences will put their presentations online for free mm-hmm. after the conference. So it it kind of continues that building and sharing, and uh, we're going to, jump to our last commercial break and when we get back build upon more of what you're telling or what you're seeing with this and what some of the additional solutions are but you're listening to buzz off with lawyer liz on a the disease of addiction is a life-altering challenge not just for the person suffering its effects but also for the family and friends who support and love the one caught in its grasp What should be the course of treatment? Who is the best person to render treatment? 
and what is the best place to go for the care that is needed. We know that you want answers to these and many more questions. Call 770-696-9862 and speak to a representative of the Atlanta Healing Center. They can tailor a program specifically designed to address the needs of the person suffering with an addiction or give you guidance as to where that help may be found. Information is the key, and the trained staff at EHC is here to assist. If you wish, you can also get more information on the website located at www.AtlantaHealingCenter.com. This is Dr. George from Peachtree ENT Center. We've won patient care awards and have the highest patient recommendations because we believe in practicing medicine the old-fashioned way. Practicing good medicine is based in listening to the patient and making a care plan that is individual. The best medical care is given when there is a strong doctor-patient relationship built on mutual trust and respect. At Peachtree ENT Center, we believe in taking care of the whole patient because healing is more than writing a prescription. Whether you have problems hearing, have frequent throat or sinus infections, from the time you call our office and speak to a real person, you'll be treated as an individual and not as an ailment. During your visit, you will not be rushed and all your questions will be answered. When possible, natural treatments will be recommended to fix the problem. If surgery is recommended, cost-effective, minimally invasive treatment for snoring, sleep apnea, or sinus problems will be offered because Peachtree ENT Center is where patient care counts. You're listening to America's Web Radio Online. Thanks for tuning in. And welcome back. You've been listening to Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz on America's Web Radio. Find us each Wednesday on americaswebradio.com or podcast podcast versions of the show are available through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, your favorite podcast streaming service, Buzz Off and Lawyer Liz are the keywords you want to search for. So we've been spending today's show chatting with Wolf about some of the issues and bigger picture that's arisen from the wanna cry and similar, what do you have when you have these older systems that through functionality, necessity, budgets are running software that's a little bit older, in some cases 16 years ago, you know, what's old is new because the problems haven't or have been there and when they start emerging, how do you address and how do you fix? And so we'll thank you for again for sharing time with us today and we were talking before the break about some of the b-sides and other conferences where you have this information sharing and resources available but this isn't a problem that's unique to these you know the manufacturing industry and their systems it's across the board as we're a connected world yeah, it, it most definitely is across the world, and it really ends up being the organizations that uh, don't have a lot of in-house security talent and don't necessarily have the, the budgets to be training their folks uh, on security. And if you know, I, I step back from my industry and community for just a minute, I'm like, yeah, that makes sense, right? We're... We're trying to um, complete the mission of the organization, and, and that mission, if you're not a security firm, is not necessarily security, right? It's to build good products, to service your customers, 
to do what uh, whatever it is you're trying to do. And because of that, when firms don't have the ability to invest in the latest and greatest or invest in the personnel who can keep these order systems secure and safe or even invest in personnel who can help uh, develop the products in a secure fashion, we start to see um, these vulnerabilities creep up and it creates these conditions where, again, we can have these flash attacks. Well, and the comment was made, and I apologize to everyone because I'm, of course, going to forget specifically which company, but it was along the lines of Domino's Pizza saying, we are a technology company that happens to make pizza. Mm-hmm. And it, you hear that on so many others because by the time you've got you know, the technology that's running their ordering systems, their inventory to you can go online and order a pizza and you can tweet about ordering a pizza, that it's no longer pick up the phone, call, hope they have your order, that everything is so integrated. They've got to have secure systems for ordering, for payment, delivery, that they really have moved away from being a pizza company. That, ever, But everyone is a technology company with the exception of my shoe repair shop in Atlanta where they take cash. Uh, you know, there is no, you just hope he put the right tag on the pair of shoes you just dropped off because otherwise there's no tracking. Right. You know, and uh, Domino's is a great example because they do have a massive IT presence and they tend to follow the same rule of thumb I see for other organizations, which is you end up with about one cybersecurity professional for every 20 people in IT or about one cybersecurity professional for every 1,000 employees. So if you look at someone like Domino's, um, they've got you know, 200 IT people and probably a good 10 security people all focused in on making sure everything from the pizza tracker to the website to their corporate IT, um, their supply chain gets protected. But when we look at smaller firms, uh, like the ones that are producing, I don't know, Internet of Things or drones or any of those things, these smaller firms tend to be very, uh, very small. In other words, the IoT firms did analysis about two years back. Um, 72% of them were less than 200 employees. And if you do that math, I mean, 72% of them are spending maybe mm, eight, maybe 12 hours uh, a year <laughs> on security. It's, it's frightening. That, fifth really, hey, talking about drones, I mean, that's one of the big, the next industry shift is the realization that it's not just the technology connected aircraft that we're flying around that it's the big picture it's the aircraft plus the software plus the ground system that's collecting all the data and there's so much that could go wrong as well as so much that goes right and then, but that realization that the aircraft and flying itself is only a small portion of it. Yes. Yeah, there was a, a recent drone um, that was discovered vulnerable. And in a way, it ties back to everything we've been talking about, including the Windows XP uh, with this ransomware. Because you want, what do you do to, to protect that? You have like a good, secure network that's separate. 
where this particular drone had um, Wi-Fi that was wide open. Okay, that's a problem. What else would you do to protect your your computer? So you'd make sure it's patched on the OS layer. Well, this particular drone was running Linux that was several versions old and unpatched. Well, that's a problem. What else would you do? You'd make sure you got really good um, permissions on that Linux and on that um, anything that was sharing information, right? An FTP server, for example. With this particular drone made by DB Power had wide open Wi-Fi and unpatched Linux box uh, with all the permissions set to read-write with a FTP server that anyone could connect to at any time and overwrite any file in the entire thing and take it over, including uh, the password files and, and all the sensitive information. And this is something that's flying, capturing live video with Wi-Fi, right, that's made to the consumers. And you're like, well, how did that happen? Well, again, you go and look at DB Power. It's a small firm. They don't necessarily have anyone dedicated to fixing these issues. Well, and up until we started connecting everything, this wasn't as big of an issue. Mm. I mean, it does it fly? Sure. Does it, you know, do you have communication links or reliable communication links between the aircraft and whatever control system? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because you're focused on the flight. You're not thinking about the fact that hackers or nefarious individuals or even unintended you know, uh, folks get in the, you know, don't realize that whatever they're doing is going to impact the aircraft system itself. It, it's a whole new world of hurt. So what do you see? I mean, how do you raise the issue with, you know, the the drone company to let them know, and how do you fix it? How do you get the word out to consumers? Consumers is a is a really broad question. <laughs> With respect to companies that are producing it, uh, a lot of it has to do with getting up in the food chain to these developer kits that they're purchasing and getting good information into the hands of of the coders, right? The the folks that are writing the software, and that was one of the things behind why we structured Converge the way we did to get developers and IT folks in, so that as they're building these systems, they can be aware of the flaws and be aware of what's going on. There was um, uh, a organization called Build It Securely. It's BuildItSecure.ly. That was started a while back by a number of people, including uh, a couple of folks here in the Michigan area. And their idea was in the IoT space to help produce a secure development platform such that when the developers build IoT devices on, like baby monitors or cameras or whatever it may be, that they started off in a secure state. They started off with this good information. And I think that's a big part of it, right? The education, the outreach, and giving these craftsmen good tools. Well, it, it circles back to the theme we keep hitting is that these are not new problems, that the problems we're seeing with drones and other things were the same problems that started popping up with the baby monitors mm-hmm. that 20 years ago when channel, you know, cross channels and, oh, is someone looking at the video feed from your children? It Old is new again. Yes, absolutely. And these, some of the main vulnerabilities we see, like SQL injection, have been around um, 
just as long as I have. And yet we find them, uh, you know, in a good number of these IoT devices. Um, Plaintext passwords we find in one in five industrial control systems these days. So you would, you would think by now that the word had gotten out, but I, I don't know that it does. I think in large parts because um, you come out of school, right, and you get excited about something you're building, and we see this all the time in the Ann Arbor area. Um, right out of school, you're going to build something new, and you start building it, and you end up making the same mistakes that you know people did five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago, 30 years ago, um, because we're not getting ahead of it and baking into the curriculum and baking into the tools. Well, and it, through B-sides and other organizations, and it's that access to the information is you know, having the history available and getting that out. Now, with the WannaCry, for example, getting out the information of, well, patch, update, those kinds of things, you certainly saw the message getting out there, but how do you break down that message so that people can understand when it applies to them, other than sending out the MIC3 team? (laughs) With our black patches. A lot of it is educating people when it happens be it wanna cry or the drone or what have you, educated people when it happens that here is the root cause. And oh, by the way, when you fix this, make it a lifestyle, make it a habit. Here, Once you start patching, continue to patch. Once you put in good network controls, continue those controls. Whatever the problem is once addressed must become a lifestyle because at a certain point in time, it has to be done again and again consistently over a longer term, 30, 40 years from now, to keep these systems secure and operational. Well, how can folks access or uh, find the information on Converge and B-Sides? I mean, y'all have certainly addressed this and put out some great presentations on this topics. Yeah, absolutely. The Converge Conference is at uh, www.convergeconference.org. And from there, they can see what's coming up as well as past recorded videos. Um, that is, of course, Detroit-centric. So by all means, in your listener audience, come on up to Detroit. But that's not always realistic for everybody. So um, I would also encourage you to check out www.securitybsides.com. At securitybsides.com, which has a list of all the B-sides across the world, uh, including one hopefully near you with existing videos on it. And how can people find you on Twitter? I'm uh, at J.W. Gorlick, so J-W-G-O-E-R-L-I-C-H. And that's also my website, jwgorlick.com. Fantastic. Well, Wolf, thank you for joining us today on the show. Thank you to America's Web Radio. Thank you to everyone for tuning in. Catch us next week on Buzz Off with Lawyer Liz. You're listening to America's Web Radio online. Thanks for tuning in.